the Irish Times Inside Business Podcast, in association with EY, building a better working world. Hello and welcome to Inside Business, a podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Laura Slattery, standing in for Curon this week and on today's pod. Prices are rising for businesses and consumers. But what, if anything, will central banks do in response to the surging rate of inflation? Owen Burke-Kennedy of the Irish Times is here to explain why concerns about inflation are mounting across the Eurozone and elsewhere. And later, I'll be talking to Irish Times technology expert Kira O'Brien about the exit of Twitter chief executive Jack Dorsey and what it means for the future of the social media company. But first, stock markets have been regularly spooked by fears that high rates of inflation are not just temporary. This week, U.S. Federal Reserve Chair Jerome Powell said the threat of persistently high inflation has risen, while in the Eurozone, the latest data shows inflation has soared to its highest rate on record. So far, the European Central Bank has stressed that this is just a post-lockdown phenomenon that will soon ease. I'm joined by Owen Burke-Kennedy. Owen, tell us about the ECB's latest position on inflation and why does it say what it says? Yeah, well, I suppose um, traditionally economists and the ECB included see inflation as as one of two types. It's either demand-led, and that means there's too many consumers chasing too few goods, or it's supply-led, and that means the cost of production has gone up or there's supply chain disruption. Now, the COVID crisis seems to have given us both. So we have a combination, as you can see, of basically too much money chasing too few goods. So you can see in Ireland, we have like increased saving rates. We have a lot of uh, consumer activity after lockdown. And at the same time, we're seeing supply chain disruption across the world. And that's, uh, among other things, has led to an increase in energy prices and a cost of living squeeze. So the central bank's view of this is that, look, it's tough. It's going to be um, hard for a while, but it's transitory and it's going to fade next year. And that word transitory has been used by central banks you know, in the US, in Europe, in England, uh, for the last number of months. Now, people argue against that. There's a lot of uh, contrary views to think that it might not be as transitory as they think. And so that's where we are at the moment. So that includes things like energy uh, prices, which we, we saw absolutely surge over the summer. And the ECB's view is that's going to plateau um, next year and, and, and eventually ease. But I suppose that's not guaranteed, I suppose. But how would you describe the tone that it's taken so far compared to what we've heard from the Fed and the Bank of England? Yeah, well, the ECB and the Fed do follow each other in terms of interest rate rises. But the Fed typically changes interest rates twice as often as the ECB and, and studies bear that out. So for a variety of complex reasons, Frankfurt, it seems kind of slower to move on on market indicators like um, what we're seeing in terms of inflation. Now, interestingly enough, the Federal Reserve Chairman uh, last night, Jerome Powell, signaled a slight change in tack or maybe a major change in tack. That's what we're actually interpreting today. But he actually said that the word transitory maybe need, needs to be retired so is he saying that the inflation post-COVID is going to be here for longer? Or is he saying that we're actually going to have inflation for a prolonged period of time? That's what markets are uh, and analysts are grappling with today. So the US markets closed down on the back of those comments last night. Um, European markets are up today on, on the basis of better economic data. So it's a very complex picture. Um, you know, so, uh, former Bank of England uh, um Governor Mervyn King last week criticised central banks for seeing what they want to see on inflation and having unsustainable fondness for quantitative easing. So that was a kind of critique that a lot of people seem to be levelling at uh, 
central bank. So it's it's a question is, you know, just will we see a withdrawal of the stimulus that we've had literally nonstop for 10 years quicker than expected? And that's usually seen as a prelude then to the big bogeymen for markets and everybody is rising interest rates. Yeah, I thought that was really interesting what Mervyn King said, because he called it the King Canute theory of inflation and sort of suggesting that that central bankers are just thinking that inflation was going to return to where, you know, target rate 2% just because that's what they, you know, have always targeted. But yeah, it, he's not, I mean, he's not the only one, I suppose, who, who sort of who said, I mean, there's this kind of a sort of a sentiment across the, the markets has kind of wondered, you know, what central banks, what they're playing at, at the moment. But you can't move too fast either, can you? Because that would take the the heat out of the recovery and the recovery might already be under threat anyway because of the Omicron variant. It's it's a very complicated situation at the moment, isn't it? It's a very complex situation and there's a lot of moving parts, a lot of balls in the air to use those cliches. But the Fed, uh, Jerome Powell also said that, you know, they would speed up the ending of their bond buying program uh, last night. Now that's usually interpreted as, as I said, a prelude to a hike in rates. So I talked to one market analyst this morning and he said, you know, they were probably factoring in two US interest rate hikes in the coming year. Now, to date, uh, as you pointed out earlier, the ECB have a different kind of tone on the whole debate. Uh, Christine Lagarde, the president, was explicit in saying that, you know, that there wouldn't be any hikes in 2022. So at the moment, there, there there's a difference between the two. But traditionally, you know, if the Fed starts increasing rates, everyone else follows. And then, as you said, the Omicron variant does complicate things because if that uh, leads to a kind of widespread slowdown and, you know, further uh, restrictions, do the central banks want to be lifting interest rates, potentially slowing growth just as the economy is emerging from the crisis? So that's another complicating factor. Yeah, and I think it's a couple of weeks, isn't it, before the governing council of the, of the ECB meets to to talk about monetary policy again. It'll be interesting to see if we hear anything from Lagarde or or any of the other senior policymakers before then. I think that's one of those things that day by day we sort of don't know what's what's going on. But the central bank governor uh, Gabriel McClough, of course, he sits on the governing council. But he said last week in an Oireachtas meeting that he was uh, worried about the impact that rising prices is having on, on Irish households. Why do you think he's, he said that? To a certain extent, I mean, I think he has to say that. I mean, you know, households are expected to be hitting energy bills that are maybe seven or eight hundred euros higher over the next year. It's, it's, it's a pretty aggressive cost of living squeeze and the central banks can't seem to be totally cold and indifferent to this notion. So... He did make the right noise in terms of householders, but he's still applying the the kind of ECB line that it's transitory, it'll fade next year, and essentially we just have to kind of grin and bear it. And then if a lot of it is coming from supply, you know, hiking interest rates, the the view of of central banks is hiking interest rates won't really, um, you know, uh, correct that. You know, hiking interest rates will will temper demand. So if there was excess demand, it would temper that. But if there was supply chain disruption, hiking interest rates may be a kind of blunt tool. Um, Central Bank Director of Economics and Statistics, Marks Cassidy, has also said that there was no evidence of a wage uh, price spiral in the Irish economy. So that's the big fear, you know, if you got into one of them, that it would be self-perpetuating. So um, they've kind of dampened any notion that, you know, there's any evidence of a prolonged period of inflation. But there is a lot of analysts, a lot of people in the markets that think they may be wrong. So it's, it's, it's really the biggest economic question in, in the world at the moment. 
I suppose it's on a knife edge in in part because you know the balance sheets are the way they are, and they've 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 had this decade now of quantitative easing and and stimulus measures that they can't really seem to unwind on and uh, wind from. But I mean, are, are we seeing evidence of of a strain on on consumer sentiment as a result of inflation, higher energy bills, and and all the rest of it? Definitely, the KBC Bank Ireland latest barometer fell to a seven month low there last month. So KBC Bank Ireland economist uh, Austin Hughes did note that consumers basically had cited inflation as one of their kind of chief worries in uh, the fall off in consumer sentiment. So, you know, um, with those big energy bills and, and consumer sentiment here and inflation are very linked to international energy prices. You know, that's the biggest hit. So, you know, those energy bills are just soaring at the moment. So that's obviously going to play on uh, consumers' minds. I mean, the interesting thing he noted is that inflation is a kind of ambivalent concept. You know, if the economy is doing very well, prices tend to rise and people can actually feel buoyant. So in other occasions, prices tend to rise and people can feel the cost of living squeeze. And I suppose that's what we're getting more this time round. Um, so where that all ends up is just impossible to say. And the Omnicom emergence of the Omnicom variant, you know, throws a, another kind of cloud in, in, across the skyline. Yeah, it's certainly a very unusual situation. I mean, this is the first week of the month, which is typically a big week for economic data. Is there anything else on, on your radar that you're, you're kind of expecting to see this week? Yeah, the interesting thing is that there's a, you know, things are happening so fast, there's a bit of a lag. So at the moment, we're, we're getting positive unemployment data, if I could use that phrase, but it's fallen to 6.9% a pandemic low. And if you think it was over 20% this time last year, so that's based on the on the pickup in activity and the pickup in spending. That's all pretty good. We'll get exchequer returns for November tomorrow. That will show almost certainly um, very buoyant tax revenues for the government. So on those two metrics, things are looking pretty good. But of course, those snapshots kind of predate um, the renewed worry around COVID and whether the recovery will be slowed. And we have a warning then from the OECD uh, today also saying that low vaccination rates across low-income countries has the potential to you know keep us on the back foot for a much more extended period. And they called on kind of, uh, you know, the developed world to uh, put a lot more more money into getting vaccination rates in low-income countries up. Yeah, and I suppose to a certain extent, when we say things are, are looking good, we, we mean better <laughs> compared to the crisis of 2020. But do, do you get a sense that um, there's a kind of a, a weariness with the length of this crisis and the, the sense of peril, I suppose, that's hanging over not just the Irish economy, but but the Eurozone and elsewhere as well? Yeah, I mean, it's it's very strange. If you think of the atmosphere going into last Christmas, there was a sort of gung-ho, we're out of it, we want our Christmas back, you know, we've done the, the worst of the heavy lifting. The atmosphere coming into this Christmas with the emergence of new variants is, is much more subdued, much more downcast, and I think the fall-off in consumer sentiment reflects that. I think people have become inured now that this thing is, is just not going away as quickly as we thought. We thought you know, I, I didn't think I'd be getting a, a, this time last year, I didn't think I'd be getting a, a vaccination uh, in the middle of this year. Um, now I'm faced with the prospect of, you know, you, you need your booster. 
Um, is that the end of it? I don't know. I mean, who's going to say after what we've been through when the end is? And when we can have a fully functioning economy again and society, of course. Owen Burke-Kennedy, thank you very much for that update. Okay, thank you, Laura. Coming up, Jack Dorsey leaves Twitter. At EY, our purpose is to build a better working world. As one of Ireland's leading professional services firms, our exceptional people are at the centre of everything we do. We deploy technology at speed and innovation at scale to deliver exceptional solutions for our clients, enabling them to transform and grow. To find out more, visit ey.com. Jack Dorsey has stepped down as chief executive of Twitter, ending his second reign at the top of the company he co-founded way back in 2006. Known to millions simply as at Jack, Dorsey said it was time for Chief Technology Officer Parag Agrawal to succeed him as CEO. But what kind of legacy does Dorsey leave and what can Agrawal do now to help Twitter compete with an ever-growing list of social media rivals? Kira O'Brien is here. Kira, tell us first of all about what Dorsey said on Monday and why he's headed for the door. Well, it was a bit of a, a stinger when he was leaving because in his, his statement to staff, he sent around an email to staff saying he had left, he was leaving, he was out the door. He basically said that there was, in, in this email, said there was a lot of talk about the importance of a company being founder-led. And ultimately, he believed that it's severely limiting and a single point of failure. Now, that's a big swipe at his uh, compatriots, I suppose, in that, you know, because there's this whole cult of the founder that, you know, the founder is the person who will take the company to the next level. He basically said as well that he'd worked hard to ensure the company could break away from its founding and its founders. Now, I mean, look, it's a bit twisty there because obviously this is his second go at CEO for Twitter. I mean, he left in 2009 and then came back as executive chairman in 2011, took over in 2015 when Dick Costello stepped down. This idea of, you know, the founder being the, the, the person who should lead the company, I mean, it's kind of relatively... Now, I wouldn't say new. I mean, I suppose in, in the context of, of the business world, it's, it's relatively new because if you think about when Google actually had to appoint a business person to lead the company, you know, it wasn't founder led. It was, you know, Eric Schmidt was, you know, he, he wasn't one of the founders, but he, he had to be appointed. You know, I think it may have been at the insistence of, you know, some of the backers that they had a business person in charge rather than the founder. And the founders were still involved. But, you know, the person kind of, you know, leading the company and making those critical business decisions was at heart a business person rather than, you know, somebody who you know, lived and breathed the company from its very beginning. Because for a lot of people, you know, when you start up a company like a tech company like Twitter, Facebook, all those things, you know, this is your baby. Uh, you work hard on it. You you spend long nights getting it to the point where uh, it's now ready to scale. And then at that point is usually where, you know, kind of the, the, the VCs um, would insist on a, a business person taking the reins and they would take it to the next level. Now, obviously, the last kind of 10, 15 years you've seen that really hasn't happened. You know, there's been so many more founder-led, uh, successful tech companies. If you look around at the moment, like Mark Zuckerberg still leading Facebook slash Meta, um, I suppose, you know, People have different opinions on his success uh, on that one. But, you know, you can see that there is, um, you know, you've got Elon Musk, you know, leading Tesla. And, and that's, you know, that there is a certain kind of, um, I suppose, a, a, a myth around the 
the whole idea of being founder led. So, you know, he's basically said, you know, he thinks that this is severely limiting to to be founder led and the point of failure. And he said it's critical that a company can stand on its own free of its founder's influence or direction. I mean, it is interesting, isn't it? Because it sort of reads a bit like a swipe at Zuckerberg. But, you know, by one metric, at least, if you look at the share price and the returns over the last uh, five to six years, um, you know, Facebook has absolutely exploded. Some other social uh, media companies have as well, whereas Twitter uh, hasn't in, in, to the same degree. So I suppose a lot of the, the reaction to his exit sort of was kind of making that point and making that criticism, which is what, the, as you say, the Elliott um, activist investor uh, was trying to um, make that point last year. But what could he have done, really, is is my question. You know, what can Twitter do now even to, to monetize the platform? Is it just a sense of... You know, it, it should it just accept that it'll never be Instagram, for example. Is it just is it just harder to monetize on Twitter? I think it is harder to monetize. And to be honest, though, if I could tell you where Twitter should go now in terms of monetization, I would probably be a lot richer than I am. Um, <laughs> the the thing is, look with with Twitter, I think that the general view that that under Dorsey there was kind of like a refining of the platform. There was adding safety features. You know, some people think not enough. I mean, obviously, there's Twitter has a a massive problem, as do many other social media platforms. They have a, it has a massive problem with misinformation and abuse, and a lot of that is directed at you know kind of um, minorities, women, you know, people who are subject to a large amount of discrimination anyway, and a large amount of abuse. I and mean, it just it's like Twitter magnifies it, and it's just you know if you are the focus and the target of abuse on Twitter, it's you know it's very um, it's it's claustrophobic at times, and. You know, I think that they've tried, I mean, they haven't, they've introduced different safety features, some successfully, some not so successfully. They've introduced new features like spaces. They've got rid of God, that God awful thing, fleets. I mean, who even used that? Um, you know, some things have succeeded, some things have not. Now, I mean, I know we all, everybody holds Facebook up as, you know, the, the, the kind of pinnacle of success in this, but Facebook has its own problems and we've seen that. I mean, there are... There are many, many problems on Facebook. I mean, Facebook is basically seen as, as you know, radicalizing anti-Mary. Um, and I'm not sure that's something that I would consider a success either. Like monetarily speaking, I suppose, yes, it is. Share price wise, yes, it is. But, you know, if Facebook continues as it is, well, sorry, Meta continues as it is and ends up getting broken up by, you know, in the US, like as, as there have been moves to do, like to break up big tech companies. I mean, you know, its future is by no means certain. No, no company's future is is certain. I think Twitter. I mean, I think they've at their last um, the, the the last count they had some like two hundred eleven million users. I mean, that seems small, um, but yeah, Twitter seems to have a disproportionate effect on public discourse as well. I mean, people are always talking about things they they've read on Twitter or they heard of on Twitter in the same way that they would about Facebook. So, I mean, I don't think Twitter is going anywhere anytime soon. I mean, it's basically been. I suppose the, the demise of, of, of Twitter has been, and the demise of Facebook, I suppose, has been um, kind of mooted several times. It's still here. It's, you know, it's it, while it not may not be like the multi-billion dollar money-spinning business that Facebook has turned itself into, I think Facebook is probably easier to monetize. And we did have these questions about Facebook back in the day, you know, when everybody was moving to the mobile platform and they had no ad on, they'd no ads on the, on the mobile platform, how they would be able to monetize it. Now, we've seen things pop up on Twitter, like promoted tweets um, and, and all that stuff. But, you know, how successful it can be in the future, where it can, where it can be monetized. I mean, 
they also have the, the Twitter blue thing, you know, where people can pay for extra features. And what do you make of those extra features? We were, I was just looking at them earlier. That Some of them seem very much aimed at the very hardcore Twitter user and not the mass bulk of Twitter users. I would say even more so than the hardcore Twitter user, they are aimed at more commercial users. So that like the power users, the people who are managing four and five different uh, social media accounts on behalf of someone rather than, you know, me or you or, you know, the, the person who tweets three times a year. I mean, I'm not I'm not going to pay for Twitter. I'm sorry. Like, I'm, <laughs> like I, I get a lot of entertainment out of it, but like I also get a lot of stress from Twitter, particularly when you find, you know, I, I think when people have found themselves kind of inadvertently in the, the eye of the storm on something that they've tweeted. Um, yeah, you, know, you just, tweet, like, you, you think you're just tweeting something about your life or something particularly innocuous and somebody finds one <laughs> single word that they, they don't, you know... <laughs> Oh, yeah. they don't like you know <laughs> the thing is twitter is kind of almost forever if you know what i mean that is one of the the, the features though of, of twitter blue you know i think is that you can you can kind of delete old things rapidly limit the visibility of of older tweets i don't know about you but i find it when somebody when i get a, a notification that somebody has liked a tweet from you know 2012 i find that incredibly creepy yeah because that's a lot of effort to go to for what god knows what end you know but this is the, the kind of the, the platform we have at the moment. Now, they have actually been doing some stuff on the safety front. Now, I spotted something there earlier today that went up last night about um, the posting of private photographs and of private information on Twitter. And I think that this is something that a lot of people would do well to remember when they are deciding whether or not to name and shame people on, on Twitter now that they're going to be cracking down on stuff like that, that you, the idea of doxing somebody where you publish their private information um, online, it's not going to be allowed in the same way that, um, you know, you won't be able to publish photographs, private photographs of, of private individuals. Now, obviously, if that person is in a march in a public place, in a, a demonstration in a public place or you know, there is a, a particular newsworthiness or public interest to the image, you know, that there there are ways around that, you know, it's not a blank, blanket ban on, you know, no private individuals will be allowed to have their photographs on, on Twitter without their consent. You know, if you are photographed, you know, kind of breaking into the Capitol building on, on January 6th, as a lot of people found they were, I don't think that that is going to come fall under that heading of getting somebody banned for posting a photograph like that. Um but, you know, that that's the kind of the, the, the Twitter we have at the moment um, where, you know, it's kind of equal parts, you know, conversation with nice people and pylons and viral pylons that can be quite unpleasant. Yeah, not to be about kind of in a sense of kind of Stockholm syndrome with Twitter that, that you know, they get something out of it, but at the same time, they resent mm-hmm. <laughs> being addicted to it. And that's yeah, something I mean, that's been going on for more than a decade now. I don't see, because a lot of people say, if you don't like Twitter, stay off it. Or if you don't like the abuse, don't tweet. Or if you don't want to, you know, just ignore people and don't react to them. Uh, I think that's a, a, a personal choice. I think if you are the target of sustained abuse on Twitter, as some people have found themselves to be, um, it's very difficult just to ignore it. And also, why should I remove myself from a platform that I do actually still get something out of just because there are some people who do not know how to behave in public. And that's what it comes down to. I mean, a lot of the things that I see on Twitter that I find objectionable, I wonder sometimes, would these people say it to your face or say it to the, say it in front of their family and friends? If they would, you know, okay, off you go. You're probably not the kind of person that I would be 
in contact with on a regular basis anyway, going from some of the tweets that I've seen. Um, if it's a case that people kind of just get emboldened by the fact that they think they're anonymous, and you just remember that nobody's anonymous on the internet, there's always a trail somewhere. Well, the average person obviously wouldn't know how to hide their identity to a degree that they would be able to be massively abusive on Twitter, manage to evade all of their, their moderation policies and still keep their identity private. You know, it, it's just one of those things. I, I like Twitter. I do. But you know, there are times when I just find it exhausting. Spaces then. Do you like spaces? You mentioned it there. That's the audio function. Uh, which yeah. they, they kind of added shortly after the launch of, of Clubhouse, that app that was an, uh, sort of for audio conversations as well. I mean, I actually tuned into Spaces when they were discussing what they called Jack's personal news on Monday. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of people discussing Dorsey and, you know, not necessarily in a positive way either. But it, it did seem more, again, like aimed at a particularly, you know, narrow kind of professional kind of audience, maybe, or maybe, you know, the, the, the sort of the, the tech crowd in particular not necessarily the sort of mainstream of, of everybody who's who's on Twitter. But do you think they'll be able to run with that or will is Spaces the new fleets? Oh, see, that's hard to, t- it's hard to tell because, look, I, I, I wouldn't be a massive fan of Spaces um, just because there are times when I don't want to have noise <laughs> and Spaces to me is more noise. Uh, look, there are, there, are some, um, there are some things that are worth doing uh, and there's something that's worth tuning into, but it's kind of like podcasts, you know, like where everybody is doing one and, you know, there's limited value and the people add limited value uh, when everybody is doing something, you know, it's not always great. And I found the same thing about Clubhouse. I found Clubhouse um, kind of hard work, to be honest. It was... Um, well, it was short-lived, yeah, I think we, yeah, well, we can say. I think it kind of arrived at the right, it got it got prominence at the right time. You know, we were all stuck at home. We all wanted something different. And then there was this thing that we were told, oh, hey, it's an invite-only club. And I saw invites changing hands for actual real-life money. I was like, if you just wait, you know, you don't have to be first in the queue. Um, and there's not a, to be honest, there's, there's a lot of noise there as well. Um, and I think that like, having these audio rooms it's it's like when everybody seized on video as the next big thing and then turned out actually it's it's not like having your videos on Facebook or having your videos on Twitter or having you know doing reels on Instagram you know yeah. there but are some people that, who do that Twitter it really had well Vine years and years ago and it didn't mm-hmm. make it work but it's you know we've seen TikTok completely explode so you could that's I suppose that's another uh, I suppose cross against uh, Jack Dorsey that that maybe there were opportunities there that he didn't completely uh, take advantage of. I think TikTok had a particular audience um, that Twitter does not. I mean, look, it's like with Snapchat. Everybody was doing Snapchat. Then um, Facebook kind of and Instagram did the stories feature, and then that kind of killed that a little bit. But I think with with Twitter and video, look, it's it's not really a platform that lends itself well to sitting there watching 15 minute videos anyway. TikTok, you kind of get stuck in a loop. And, you know, there was, there was a bit of an excitement to TikTok when it, it came out first. You know, it managed to kind of gain traction with a younger age group that Twitter hasn't because, you know, it's it's text based. It's not as, you know, it's not as appealing as something like like TikTok or Snapchat would have been. I think Twitter does conversations and, you know, they've kind of improved how people can follow conversations over the years. But as for trying to take on something like TikTok, I don't think that they have the right audience base for that, if you know what I mean. Like I think like TikTok started off 
as a much younger audience base anyway, they they jumped on board with the whole video thing. It took off, you know, you now have TikTok stars and, you know, you can get stuck in that, that kind of TikTok loop scrolling for hours and hours. There's very few things on TikTok that would actually make me angry or frustrated the way that we would see stuff on Twitter. Though I think that, you know, there were some good features added, like, you know, the show more replies where they hide what they the algorithms deem the lower quality replies. I mean, never click on that. You know, never, unless you want to irritate yourself, never click on that. I used to laugh at people messaging at Jack as if he had his notifications <laughs> turned on from people he didn't Oh, you'd have to turn them off, wouldn't you? His phone would have exploded or melted down or something with the amount of, of notifications. And you think about it, like, if you look at the, um, at the, the engagement that his tweets get, even when they're they're very simple things, you know, like saying I love Twitter and all that stuff. If you look at the engagement that that gets, if you had notifications turned on, you would actually throw your phone out the window. But even by the standards of of Silicon Valley uh, CEOs, he was quite an unusual character. I'm going to say I should say he is still quite an unusual. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say he hasn't died. He's just resigned from Twitter. He's still CEO of Square, and he's going to concentrate on that and his philanthropy and his beard um, and his cryptocurrencies. And his cryptocurrencies, yes, and probably his one meal a day and, you know, all those other strange things that he did. But look, he's decided now is the time, the right time to step away from Twitter. And if it is the right time, I mean, like he's, he's not leaving the company in the hands of an unknown, you know. Parag Agrawal is unknown to us. He's not the celebrity chief executive, but he's worked with Twitter for 10 years and he was chief technology officer there most recently. So, like, he is taking on a fairly high profile, fairly politically volatile, as I heard it described in the Guardian job. You know, I mean, you are going to be the lightning rod for a lot of people's discontent on Twitter. But he comes from basically a tech background. Um, and that is, I suppose, what they would have, their investors would have been looking for to take Twitter forward to the next level. Um, he should, I mean, I've been seeing him described as a safe pick. Uh, he's a safe pair of hands, basically. Um, but that's, you know, I think that's something that a lot of tech companies have, that's the kind of the pattern that they followed. You know, the founder goes, they put into a safe pair of hands and then, you know, the company develops from there. I can't see Twitter drastically changing direction under his leadership. I mean, he did kind of say that, you know, that the, the, the focus was now to kind of do, to further Twitter's uh, strategy, which is trying to, to double revenue by 2023. Um, and, you know, I suppose look at how, so it's such social media companies are viewed, how they operate, what they do, um, and kind of take it from there. They do have issues in that, you know, their user growth hasn't been spectacular. Um, and this has been cited as a problem for Twitter for a long time. But whether or not it's enough to kind of, you know, to tank Twitter, I don't think it is. You know, people have kind of stuck with the platform through all of the the controversies and the accusations of you know, amplifying abuse and voices that would otherwise not be heard, I suppose. And that would be from the negative point of view. Obviously, on the positive side of things, you know, it amplifies voices that might not be heard. And there are there are things that have happened that may not have happened if Twitter and other social media companies weren't around. Um, so I wouldn't be writing Twitter off anytime soon. I mean, I'd see now, maybe come back in a year and see how they're getting on then and see how uh, how their new CEO has done. Yeah, I will say that at least he doesn't have uh, one uh, Donald J. Trump to deal with, uh, Power Well, He's lucky in yeah. that sense. But uh, Kira O'Brien, thank you very much for talking us through Dorsey's departure. 
That's it for this week's Inside Business with Owen Burke Kennedy, Kira O'Brien, and me, Laura Slattery. A reminder that you can get the latest business news directly into your inbox if you sign up to our Business Today email on irishtimes.com. Today's podcast was produced by Declan Conlon with JJ Vernon on sound. We'll be back next Wednesday. Thank you for listening.